morning and good evening in China. Uh, today we have a moderator, uh, Professor Robert Ross, who doesn't need any introduction. He's well known to all of us as a foremost uh, sonologist. But what I, when I got to know him, uh, I was really impressed on what he knows about the military uh, aspect of uh, Taiwan, China, and United States, and how military power and strength plays in the international relations. And uh, he, of course, Professor Ross is a professor uh, in political science and international relations at Boston College. Thank you very much for moderating the session today, Bob. Thank you very much, Bill, and it's indeed an honor to do this. Um, this is the first time I've had this occasion since the passing of Ezra. We all know that one of Ezra's legacies is this program, and I think we're all committed to keeping this series going. It's simply in honor of Ezra and the importance of this series that Ezra created um, for our understanding of China nationally and internationally. I say nationally and internationally because if you look at the participants over time, they come from around the world. And so the contribution this makes to China studies is very important. And today, it's also not only an honor, but a pleasure to be doing this because I get to introduce Andrea Gaselli. I've known Andrea for a number of years. Andrea teaches at uh, Fudan University in the School of International Relations and Public Affairs. Um, so this immediately tells us that this is someone who knows an awful lot about China. He knows Chinese society more than simply international relations and foreign policy. This is someone, if you have a question about China, Andrea usually can answer any question about anything because unlike most of us, he is immersed in society as well as in his research and scholarship. But not only that, but Andrea wears a number of different hats. He, he hasn't lost his Italian connection. So Andrea, it works very closely with the um, China Med Project, which is the most active program in Europe in understanding the relationship between the Mediterranean countries and China, an active research program, a training program for undergraduate students, a summer program. Um, and it's based in Torino. So that's all you have to know, to know that Andrea will always be active in this project because Torino is a beautiful city. So today, however, we're talking about Andrea's book, and if you're like myself and you study Chinese foreign policy, you have noticed and observed that, that going back many years, back to, well, I guess, 2015, um, all of a sudden, um, Chinese workers abroad and Chinese industries abroad found themselves in trouble as they were working on un in unstable countries and they were subjected to often to violence and kidnapping and so forth. And you knew this was a pressing issue for the Chinese government, but you didn't really know what was going on and how the government was responding to a new China, a China that had gone global with its economic participation around the world, its workers around the world, subjected to kidnapping, instability, war, violence. You just knew it was a pressing issue. And I've always wondered what is exactly going on. Well, having read Andrea's book and his recent article in China Quarterly, I now know. So I would suggest you all, if you're interested in this subject, Andrea's book is called Protecting China's Interests Overseas, Securitization of Foreign Policy with Oxford University Press. And he has a recent article in the China Quarterly, which goes deep into asking, how does instability, Chinese government warnings, how does it impact a, a 
a Chinese multinational corporation and this decision to send workers abroad to unstable areas. So this is one, a very important subject for those of us who study Chinese foreign policy and China's growing global presence. And two, it's simply a very well done book and article which we can learn a lot from. So with that, Andrea, I leave it to you and, and please. I will just jump in. I, I apologize, Dr. Giselle, just to let remind people how the Q&A works because they may have questions. Um, and, and so it, for those of you who have been with us before, you know how it works, but those of you who haven't, welcome. And there's a Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen. Um, all you need to do is enter your question in there at any point during the talk, and we will have a Q&A section at the end. If you want to be anonymous, check that box. If not, please let us know who you are and any institutional affiliations you have so we know who's asking. Um, all right, I'll, over to you, Dr. All right. Uh, good morning for those in the United States. Uh, good evening for those like me that are in Asia at the moment. Uh, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be able to uh, talk about my research with you tonight. Um, and since I'm sincerely grateful, grateful to the leadership and to the staff of the Fairbank Center, and of course to uh, Bob Ross, who has been of great help to organize this and who I had the pleasure to know for many years. I'm also very happy to see many familiar names uh, in the audience. Uh, I hope uh, you will find my uh, uh, talk interesting. And of course, I look forward to your questions and comments. Uh, let me share my screen. I have a PowerPoint prepared. Here it is, should be working. Okay, so. In, in, in the book, and, and actually the book is a bit the summary and the, the latest in a way development of my research, I'm interested as, as Bob and as many others in understanding how the Chinese government uh, has tried to approach the problem of protecting its uh, uh, interests, that is the lives and the assets of its citizens abroad, especially as uh, over time, the number of uh, workers, tourists, um, of, uh, and so far and so on going abroad has increased and so have the number of incidents in which they've been involved and uh, thereby also putting pressure on government to do something to protect them. So uh, today, I would say, especially by, uh, today, uh, and I would say especially since the opening of the uh, first uh, logistic or military base, military logistic base in Djibouti, uh, we all take for granted, I would say, all saying, I would say, much of the uh, English-speaking uh, uh, world take for granted that uh, China will use, uh, or, is, is, or it's very likely that China will use its uh, growing uh, military power to protect its interests overseas. And honestly, um, it seems that it, that's the consensus in Beijing as well. Uh, we can, if we look at uh, the defense white papers over time. Uh, the, the, the references to interest overseas uh, have increased, uh, and today they're one of the strategic tasks of the PLA. Um, if, we, if, we, if we read that uh, Chinese academic publications, we also see that in general the question is not anymore, uh, should we or should we not use it, but how should we do it? Um, what is the best way, the most effective way to do that, uh, to, of course, uh, um, protect our interests at the same time, avoid uh, uh, the cost that doing so uh, uh, sometimes uh, implies. Um, 
However, uh, although there is a consensus today, um, this was not the consensus uh, uh, years ago. And uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, well, of course, using uh, military force abroad is always expensive, not just in economic terms, but because of the potential political diplomatic cost uh, that that entails. And uh, I would say that uh, the, despite the, the, the talks, uh, the talking about Chinese uh, assertiveness in Asia, uh, Chinese foreign policy, and here I borrow from uh, the Israeli scholar Itza Shikor, uh, has long pursued, uh, has, has long been one of uh, uh, a Japanized foreign policy, especially outside Asia, that is business first, uh, trying to stay out of thorny security issues, uh, uh, avoid to be seen as somehow replicating uh, uh, American interventionism in the Middle East, especially, and, and of course, being extremely careful not to use the military and being very cautious uh, about thinking about it. Uh, uh, so a change like that, I mean, think about uh, using the military, especially coming from where China started, uh, is something very difficult to do and to actually agree to do. Uh, it, it, because also, of course, entails uh, changing how the norms and different bureaucracy under the Chinese leadership works. And we are talking about, uh, in, on the civilian side, of course, we're talking about the MFA, Minister of Foreign Affairs, we're talking about Ministry of Commerce, uh, the NDRC, uh, that of course they are not in, involved in protecting the people abroad, but they are involved in uh, somehow managing the expansion of Chinese human economic footprint uh, abroad. And of course, we are talking about the PLA, another extremely powerful institution uh, that has its own uh, interest, um, as I will also talk in a moment. Uh, so, changing how these different actors behave is not easy. Uh, and so, and that goes basically to uh, increase, further increase the potential cost of using the military abroad. So what I wanted to do in this book is to try to understand how this happened, how this decision was made. Uh, and this also because, I mean, especially today, we, we, we are told that we live in this era of great power competition. So much of the writings on China, especially in Chinese use of the military and so far and so on, uh, explicitly or implicitly, include a statement that goes uh, include basically um, sorry describe China as trying as trying or wanting to use its uh, power to uh, decrease the influence of the United States uh, being ready to coerce other countries and so far and so on uh, but actually if we look at the literature on the different actual military operations of China that China carries out outside Asia uh, it's uh, this interpretation is always, I know, I always find it a bit wanting when it comes to say why Chinese peacekeeping operation evolved in a certain ways, why Djibouti, uh, why why only Djibouti, why in that moment and not before, since for example the narrative of the string of pearls have been going on since I believe 2004. So I I, I thought it was necessary to uh, change the, our approach to study this issue. And to do so, I thought that it's important to somehow to put aside uh, uh, the idea that China is somehow always out there to trying to get the United States, always trying to compete with other countries, and so far and so on. And so in a way, kind of imposing uh, the uh, our understanding of what China wants on how we analyze China. And to do that, I decided to use securitization theory 
uh, which basically means it's we have to we basically we take we have to take one we have to take one step back and ask, for example, when we talk when the, when we or when they in this case Chinese government talks about security, security for whom are you talking about? Uh, what are what are the threats that you know uh, this security should be assured, and what are the measures that uh, the government believes are necessary to 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 protect the the, the reference object uh, in, in the in the debate in the discourse um of course i i i'm human i also this book comes from my PhD dissertation so i had a limited amount of time to <laughs> to to answer these questions and so i decided to focus geographically uh, on north africa and the middle east that are the areas where uh, chinese human economic presence are it's, it's one of the regions of the world where Chinese human security, uh, human and economic presence is the most developed, and also where they uh, this presence uh, has come under threat most of the times, and also where Chinese military presence is most developed. Uh, I mean, of course, taken uh, aside aside from Asia. So uh, this, uh, so I decide I, in the, in the book, I try to essentially to uh, answer. Sorry. To, uh, to 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 address this first question, that is, how has the need uh, to protect the interest, its interest on sea influenced Chinese foreign security policy, which essentially means asking two sub questions, trying to find a, an answer for two sub questions. The first one is how actually uh, it, we take for granted that a government should protect its citizens, but it's important to understand how uh, you know even if we take it for granted, it's important to understand how and why. Uh, the government start to talk about it, and so this is the this is the first sub question. So basically, how uh, the protection of the interest overseas um, has been has entered into the policy, into the foreign and security policy agenda of, of China. And the second part is uh, more about how this uh, you know once this issue entered into the agenda, how it shaped, but also of course how it was shaped by the interest and the uh, or yeah, by the interest and the different connections and relationship between the uh, uh, different actors uh, that are involved in protecting and managing somehow the presence of, uh, sorry, the Chinese nationals and Chinese companies uh, abroad. In general, uh, if I had to summarize the findings, it's uh, it was essentially there was, it was nothing that strategic, actually. The, the the way that the Chinese government came to think about protecting uh, uh, its, its citizens and its and the assets of its companies abroad, and then to the also to include the military as part of the efforts to do that, was essentially crisis driven. Uh, and I would say that uh, maybe for like as I try to then uh, I, to explain the book. Uh, different reasons made uh, the process not that smooth, and essentially only a big crisis that was the 2011 uh, evacuation of about 36,000 Chinese nationals from Libya really pushed the process forward. It was also a tortuous process again, uh, with uh, some uh, and, and also an incomplete one with uh, some of the problems at the very root of basically this the presence of Chinese nationals in places where they should not be still being there being still there, sorry. Uh, and of course, also bigger question that although, as I, as I said at the very beginning, 
there is a general consensus that the PLA should be involved in protecting the, the China's interest overseas. Uh, the, uh, the question is still, how do we do it? And that question has not been answered yet. Uh, there is a debate ongoing. Uh, and uh, although, as I was saying before, starting uh, the, this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this event uh, with Bob, uh, I think Djibouti is an example of that. It's there, it's the result of this process. But then exactly how to use Djibouti as, uh, and the assets inside, that's the real question at the moment. And uh, it's, again, it's, a, it's still an open question, I would say. And uh, this process was at the very beginning, I would say, was uh, deeply shaped by the different institutional interests, uh, so by different uh, interests of the institutions involved. Although as time passed, uh, those institutions had somehow to bend to the force of securitization, the securitization process initiated by the Chinese leadership, uh, especially it was initiated under Hu Jintao and, and then it really kicked in between it as uh, basically the Hu Jintao leadership passed on the torch to, to Xi Jinping. Uh, so it, this is uh, how I show essentially this process. Uh, this also corresponds to the structure of the book, if we take away, of course, the introduction. Um, and uh, in the first chapter, I essentially look at how the Chinese civilian leadership uh, start to talk about uh, the, the importance of non-traditional security issues overseas, and uh, as time passed on, uh, uh, talk about also the role of the PLA in dealing with them. Uh, and uh, so these the securitizing actors, so the actors that actually start to talk about and test to bring the issue into the agenda uh, and, uh, and start to say, we have to protect this reference object and we have to do it using deploying these measures. But then we have an empowering audience. Uh, empowering audience usually is an audience that institutionally is subordinated to the securitizing actor, which clearly is the case of the PLA. But nonetheless, it's important the securitizing actor, so senior leadership need to have the PLA on board to actually uh, uh, start to implement uh, uh, to start to implement the policy. Uh, and so this is what the second chapter of the book does. It looks basically looks at the same issue of the first chapter, but from the points of view of the military uh, and how the debate within the PLA uh, evolves. The following chapters look uh, uh, focus on the role of functional actors as basically those actors that do, they do not really have a veto power, so to say, in the securitization process, but they can definitely influence it. Uh, so for example, we have the ministries like the MFA, uh, in MOFCOM, we also have a community of experts inside and outside the government. So for example, look at uh, the expertise of Chinese diplomats in the Middle East and West Africa, uh, public opinion, how the uh, public narrative um, developed over time, how Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese public opinion reacted, for example, to crisis overseas uh, and how, and to the messaging of the government to that. Um, the sixth chapter then focuses on laws and regulations that have been uh, that were launched and start to be uh, uh, implemented. Uh, so to somehow uh, regulate the the resources at the disposal of the Chinese government uh, in order to protect uh, China's interest overseas. So, for example, the strengthening of the consular protection system starting the mid two thousand evolution of reg of regulations uh, uh, for. Uh, Chinese companies going abroad to invest or joining uh, contractor uh, international contracts. 
but also, of course, uh, uh, at the doctrinal level within the PLA, uh, how, for example, the concept of military operations side of the war developed over time. And finally, I would say this is somehow the most boring chapter of the book because it's the one that probably is, is, is what is best known, is what studied the most in, uh, in, other, uh, in, in the work of other scholars, so how Chinese uh, operations then changed. So uh, the, the, how the naval patrols in the Gulf of Aden uh, came to take place, uh, uh, you know, the, the presence, uh, the, the minimal presence of the PAP uh, abroad, uh, evolution of Chinese peacekeeping operations with the introduction of combat troops. And of course, uh, I try also to uh, uh, pinpoint the process behind the opening of the base in Djibouti. So it's more or less the, uh, well, how I try to answer these questions. Uh, in general, uh, as I said, it was clearly the case, uh, like the decision to then start to deploy the PLA abroad, uh, was clearly driven by the, the growing awareness that non-traditional security threats abroad uh, uh, were increasingly important. Uh, this happened, uh, as I try here to show graphically, uh, over time in, a, um, in, in different moments, uh, starting more or less with Jansamin and the idea of a new security concept, uh, ending up with uh, uh, again, protection, the protection of, in, of the interest overseas being one of the strategic tasks of the PLA. Uh, over time, if we look at, the, at how the civilians talk about this issue and the role of the PLA, we see that there has been a, the, the definition of the threat became increasingly clear. So from being just non-traditional security threats, which is something very difficult to define, over time, they start to talk about, for example, terrorism, so specifically political instability in third countries, uh, piracy, and so forth. So the threat became more precise. And as they did that, they also start to identify clearly, more clearly what is the reference object, what is that they want to protect. So we see, for example, the introduction of um, the new historic missions, uh, sorry, uh, the development interest in 2004, uh, then we, we see the first, uh, um, in, this is in the defense web papers. Then in 2013, we see a, the first reference, the first official reference to overseas interest. And again, uh, the, the interest of Chinese companies and, and nationals abroad. And, uh, I, and how basically has this definition became clear. So also, of course, the somehow the exhortations uh, to the PLA to engage, uh, so to be involved in doing that. Uh, I would say especially uh, this became very clear in the 2013 white paper when the Chinese government said that the PLA should take, uh, should, should make active preparations also during peacetime uh, to protect China's interest uh, overseas. Uh, so in general, it was, uh, in, I would say that among the civilians, the process was very somehow linear and smooth. That was not necessarily the case among, uh, within the PLA, uh, with uh, essentially until 2012, well, basically until the, uh, the until immediately after the evacuation from Libya, it was possible to see uh, in the debate different positions, and in general speaking, a certain reluctance, uh, certain reluctance to really engage with the topic. Uh, growing, you know, yeah, non Essentially, the debate was going like. Uh, Nutrition security issues are important, but our own business is to fight wars. 
very simple. For the rest, you can call on the you can call the MFA, for example, or other civilian agencies. Um, that seemed to change a bit in 2008, but that was mostly because of the of course the earthquake in Sichuan. So it was not really a, a, a an overseas issue, but that really changed uh, after the evacuation from Libya. When we see the uh, uh, the debate on in, within the PLA clearly changing. And I think it's interesting to see how they change uh, because the preference for, for traditional uh, uh, missions or what Fever and Gelpi call real politic missions remained. Uh, but there was, a, there was this intellectual connection with non-traditional security threats where essentially the PLA was saying, wait a minute, actually non-traditional security crisis can lead to uh, interstate conflicts, where the, which then is our business. So we should be able to intervene as, also in that case. And uh, I would say that the most significant um, result of this process within the PLA, at least the, that I found, uh, uh, with the limit, of course, of using open sources, uh, was, for example, a 2013 article penned by Zhao Keshe, back then the director of the logistics support department of the PLA, saying we need bases overseas. So a very big endorsement from one of the really uh, leaders uh, of the PLA, which, in my opinion, uh, that article really shows that how the debate matured and a very strong consensus uh, uh, was built. And therefore, in the, and, and, follow, and, uh, and then uh, we, as I described in a moment, that somehow cascaded down uh, with broader, you know, more investment into, in, in really into the thinking of, okay, how do we do this? Okay. And um, different things happened. This is uh, uh, somehow, uh, this is basically a list of uh, things that uh, took place over the years. As you can see, the only, Oh, sorry. I was, uh, as you can see, basically the only two new measures on the civilians on the side of civilian institutions took place before the evacuation from Libya. So the strengthening of the consular protection system and the beginning of the overhauling of the regulatory environment for chains companies to go abroad. Um, my like my interpretation of this and this is you know the fact that most of the changes then at the, within the PLA took place only after 2011 was essentially that at the beginning the Chinese government uh, preferred as as, as uh, we can understand uh, a civilian solution and essentially this was the creation of a stick and carrot system that somehow made uh, Chinese companies responsible for their own security essentially not to uh, find itself in situations where they might be forced to call, where the government might be pressured to intervene. Uh, with, Djibouti, with, the, with the evacuation from Libya, that became, it became clear that the system failed and therefore it was necessary to also think at more uh, sort of uh, expensive solutions. And indeed this was happened. So we see within the PLA, for example, new resources being institutions aimed for the, at the training and study, on military operations under the war. As I mentioned before, the debate changed from uh, uh, more general issues like should we engage with this task or not? Uh, or like, or just very general description of uh, operations overseas to more technical uh, uh, discussions about like what, what kind of laws 
uh, are at our disposal, for example, to regulate our interaction with uh, foreign forces. Uh, what happens if uh, some of our assets are damaged or, or what if we by mistake damage the assets of host countries or other uh, of our other countries during operations, how the reimbursement <laughs> work? Um, uh, you know, so very technical things, there was a, clearly a, a switch in this. Uh, of course, it all translated doctrinal level with military operations that were becoming an independent set of missions. Um, this could clear if you look, for example, at uh, uh, the Channel Hue, the science of military strategy, uh, we see that for the first time. And so, so they generally speaking, the way that military operations that were described is more uh, kind of change from being a more a rather theoretical discussion to a more practical one. So discussing discussing missions that the PLA was already uh, carrying out or might carry out uh, uh, in, in a not so distant future. Uh, of course, there were changes also at the top. Um, well, we had the, the, the upgrade of the uh, Foreign Affairs Monitoring Group, uh, and of course, the establishment of the uh, National Security Commission. Uh, I'm not saying that these institutions were necessarily, like the birth or the development of the institution was necessarily caused by the securitization on nutritional security issues, but definitely I would say uh, that are related to that we can look we can see uh, from the point of view of like a search for uh, better coordination of the agencies uh, under this under the uh, chinese leadership and it's very interesting for example in the case of the national security commission the uh, some of the comments made by chinese civilian military scholars that they say well the central military commission is perfectly capable of dealing with war situations so uh, the non so the, the National Security Commission probably, at least in terms of foreign policy, will be more tasked to take care more of non-traditional, uh, to of dealing with non-traditional security issues and coordinate, you know, which of course imply uh, a, a larger coordination between, for example, armed forces and civilian agencies. Um, it was not. Um, in any case, it was not like all a successful story. Not that everything changed, and uh, I would I think the most interesting uh, case of uh, continuity, despite the pressure the, of finding solutions to protect the Chinese national security, is what what it seems to me the only case of attempt uh, reform of the private security industry which failed in two thousand twelve. Uh, in two thousand twelve, um, uh, I believe. 29 workers of Sino Hydrowick were kidnapped in uh, Sudan. Uh, back then, one of the uh, top managers of Sino Hydro was uh, Han Fan Ming, which, was, which is also the founder of the Charhari Institute, uh, which is also the, uh, I believe now, at least back then, was the vice chairman of Foreign Affairs Committee of the Chinese People uh, uh, Consultative uh, Conference. Um, he was also one of those that, at least according to Chinese media, proposed a, a reform of the private security industry, which is also uh, and, and important to say that the Charhara Institute, that is the institute he founded, is also one of the few, very few centers in China that actually dealt with this topic, that published reports on the topic in a rather uh, technical and favorable way. So he, he actually made proposals for uh, changing how the private security industry works, uh, which essentially would essentially means uh, allowing uh, Chinese contractors to carry gun, uh, and that didn't happen. 
Um, why it didn't happen? Uh, my opinion is that uh, Chinese policymakers somehow agreed with uh, what uh, scholars from Tsinghua University wrote. Uh, that is, if, China, if the Chinese government allowed private, the private security industry, Chinese domestic industry, to become like the Western one, the risk would have been that they, these Chinese companies that at the moment are not competitive because they cannot offer uh, armed uh, protection, uh, they would actually be, become uh, much more competitive, but uh, and but also more expensive. And in a way, the problem with China is is not that the big SOEs cannot protect themselves because, like CMPC, spends billion in security for its operations in Iraq. But the problem is, are all the small companies that do not pay much for their own protection uh, when they go abroad, and so having Chinese expensive Chinese contractors not solve the problem while at the same time causing uh, potentially being a liability in case contractors were killed or killed other people once abroad and being and there is being seen as uh, actually operatives of the Chinese government. Um, one last point just to show that uh, really this process is not complete and there are definitely things that still have to be addressed. Uh, this is the essentially aggression, as Bob mentioned, I have this new article coming up in China quarterly, that is basically the statistical, statistical development of uh, uh, one of the points that I make in the book, uh, that is uh, essentially uh, Chinese companies going abroad, are pretty, they pretty much ignore the warnings that come from the government. So, for example, here we measure the impact of warnings from the from uh, from Chinese embassies in Middle East and South Africa, and also the impact of uh, what we call expert perception. Is basically the kind of information that insurance companies would provide, uh, of course, uh, uh, not for free. Uh, this the impact of these kind of informations and warnings on the number of Chinese uh, uh, workers sent by a Chinese engineering contractors. And essentially, there was no uh, there was no impact whatsoever. The only very strong and negative impact, of course, was in the case of uh, uh, violent events of like of a significant scale. And we ran this regression, was including a dummy variable for uh, the Arab Spring, and there was no change. So essentially, there was no learning. So whereas on the one hand, it is true that. Uh, the government, it seems that there's this consensus about using the PLA. My impression is that there's still no answer to the question, how do we use it? But at the same time, the problem at the very root of it, that a demand for protection is still there. And this is because uh, essentially Chinese companies have not learned the lesson in Libya. So I will uh, stop here. Um, thank you for the attention. And uh, of course, I look forward to comments, questions, feedback, and, uh, and so on. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Um, you lived up to your reputation for knowing a lot about this subject. So that was a great talk and something we're all interested in and you filled in a lot of important information. So let me say first that this is a very large group out there who've been listening to you, filled with a lot of knowledgeable people who have many good questions. And we have about a half hour to answer them all. So I would request that those who ask questions try and be brief and we'll try and get to everyone. Um, but I'm gonna take the opportunity to ask the first question. And this has to do with the relationship between the corporations that go abroad and the state. 
And there's a suggestion in the book and in the article that there's an, the corporations are out there on their own and they ignore the government, they ignore the embassy, and they're basically to a large extent independent actors. Um, and the government wants them to assume the costs of any risks that they may entail or may assume. And there are a number of things that come into that. One, I think of the Belt and Road Initiative, where the government is actively persuading companies to go abroad to areas that may not be safe. And in those circumstances, one might expect the government would reassure the companies that do you face problems, we, we will assume costs. So what's that relationship between a policy that promotes companies to go abroad and the assumption of costs so that they may be ignoring warnings, but they're doing so at the encouragement of the government. Um, related to that, just the understanding that the multinational corporations are free to ignore government advice is somewhat contrary to how we might understand the relationship between the state and the economy. Now, many of these companies are very large very large companies, and they're part of the party nomenclature at the very top. And so they would be subjected at least to the party hierarchy and party orders. And so one would think that there's this room in there between normal economic behavior and when the party wants it to jump. And then they would jump. So it's not my understanding, just watching China, is that the issue is not whether or not companies can ignore the government. The issue is when the government wants them to comply. And when they do, they will comply. Now, related to that, the issue of risk, do you see something, a trend over time? Some have argued that the risks that companies might undertake has been so great that there's been less interest in investing upstream in various activities and buying resources at the port to reduce risk. And then second, there's a sense that companies or China's involvement in African countries and those that are least stable reflects that China's a latecomer. And so the better places to invest are pretty much occupied by foreign, foreign companies from other countries. Now, to, to what extent do Chinese understand this? And they're trying to move away from the low-hanging fruit, if you will, of countries that need Chinese investment and trying to move to better places. Thanks. The first question, um, so how do we uh, somehow uh, understand, on one hand, Chinese companies taking risk and at the same time, the Belt and Road Initiative? Um, and of, uh, it's, it's a great question. I honestly, I think it's a case of, <sighs> I think it's a case of uh, over uh, ambition or I, I think it's a mix of things. There's a hope that like a system of incentives will work not to put companies in, in two greater dangers. Uh, there's the attempt, I would say, to also to focus on uh, building capacity uh, in, in host countries. And I'm thinking, for example, uh, uh, the latest book of Lina Ben Abdallah on this. Uh, she did a great job on this, uh, showing, for example, how even Chinese private contractors or through military cooperation with host countries, there is this attempt to pass uh, 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 the kind of knowledge that can be useful also for protecting uh, Chinese interests there. Um, it, but again, 
I think it's a, I, I'm not really sure how long this is so inconsistency of pressure to protect these companies and time pressure, pressure to these companies to go abroad uh, can be sustained. I, I'm not really sure, uh, but I think in a way it's still there. Uh, I would like to know also myself how this, uh, how this uh, will work. Uh, but my, my impression is that so for, for the moment, uh, caution uh, remain, uh, the level of caution, is, uh, caution remain very high. And I'm not really sure. Uh, and so probably it's, it's, it would be tolerable to have a few more incidents as long as they're not like, like Libya or uh, like such a large scale events. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would say this. And uh, on, on, I would say it is true that uh, some, this goes a bit against the, our, our understanding of the relationship between companies and, 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 and state. Uh, but I would say in recent years, there's been also growing literature. Uh, it, it, it mostly started in the, in the kind of subfield of Sino-African relations. But I'm, saying, I'm talking, for example, about uh, me, uh, Professor Mie's book, which I see is in the audience. Uh, also, or also other scholars that show this de development of the Chinese regulatory state as somehow a natural development that is not just in China, but is something that it's, it's just happening and uh, somehow loosening these, uh, the relationship between state and companies. And of course, the party and the government can impose comply. The question, but the, there are so many, uh, I imagine that if you are the leader of a big country like China or the United States and so on, you have emergencies every day and uh, sometimes just uh, you don't have time enough to actually uh, do everything you want, even, when, even if you could. Sometimes you just don't have time, other priorities, other things can may come up. Uh, maybe, you know, we can see, we can imagine that after the evacuation from Yemen, people were also like, well, maybe we found the right balance. And uh, we have the, the minimum amount of assets that we need to intervene if, we need, if it's necessary. And that's going to work just fine for the moment. And uh, unless there is another big event, we will just keep doing that without increasing or decreasing. Um, yeah. Good, thank you. Um, as I was fearful of, you have a lot of questions out there. Um, so yes, we do have a question from Yemin from Boston University. And Yemin is very interested in the bureaucratic structure for which this operates, um, and particularly the various missions that are assigned to the PLA. But she'd like to know, as Xi Jinping has focused on military preparedness for war, how has this affected these overseas operations? And do we see the use, the dual use infrastructures be, be, being built in these areas so that we may focus on the non-traditional sorts of security, but do we see dual infrastructures aligning with uh, Xi Jinping's order to prepare for war? And in a related issue, but maybe something you can tell us about, she asked about digital technologies and security surveillance mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in other countries that may be emanating yeah. or organized by a Chinese presence overseas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I'll try to be brief. Uh, uh, so in the first case, how mobilization of for war and overseas operation, I don't think they're seen as uh, uh, non-consistent with each other. Uh, I think this is also a, a part of a question uh, from uh, Isaac Cardon, I see it. Um, they, I, don't, I don't think the Chinese leadership, this the civil leadership never seen this as exclusive, as excluding one, I mean, as one excluding the other. Uh, my impression was more the PLA was more focused on the traditional side 
uh, on the on traditional missions and it didn't really want to be engaged in other missions because you know it might divert resources that can be used for traditional modernization and so far and so on. Um, that said, uh, so at least in the sources that I, I consulted, I don't see uh, the, uh, the discussion about how preparing for uh, non-traditional missions is gonna help us. At least that didn't happen until after Libya. Uh, after Libya, it was more like, again, in the context of a general rethinking of the role of the PLA also vis-a-vis -vis this, uh, in, in, this, in, this, in the case of this mission, then there was also the, the, then the discussion, so the, sorry, one of the theme of the discussions became, well, preparing for one can help us to prepare for the other and vice versa. So there was a general kind of rationalization of the needs. Um, as to uh, the, the role of surveillance, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, but I remember like reading uh, this, uh, one of the uh, articles on the reform of private security. Uh, uh, well, in this case it was about how to, we do, how, how would we monitor uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese security contractors abroad from, you know, prevent them from creating disasters. Uh, so it's not, it's a, in a way it's a narrow case. It's not like all Chinese companies, but like uh, one of the issues that came out was simply like even some of our most powerful domestic ministries like uh, Ministry of State Security and so on, uh, uh, they just do not have the capacity to do that. Uh, we, 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 are, we are not really capable of doing that. So maybe we can, uh, honestly, we, we, maybe we can have something going toward a, a, a kind of closer monitoring of companies. Uh, but I, for example, not in such a stealth way, but we already see like regulations for uh, contractors uh, trying to join uh, international uh, bids abroad. They have to actually provide a lot of material showing that it's not just feasible in economic terms, but the security conditions for operating in that place are also there. They have to ask feedback from the embassy and the ministry. So I think we can, if it, if you think about monitoring, there is also, I think there's more like a open side of it, uh, uh, which probably is actually a bit easier from a bureaucratic point of view. Um, yeah, I, I hope I replied. Thank you. So as you know, we have a strong contingency of naval experts and they were asking um, similar questions. So I'll combine two questions. Um, these are from Isaac, Isaac Carden and Steve Schinkel from the Naval War College. And that, similarly addresses the dual use of these facilities, um, and particularly Djibouti and China's presence in the region to serve China's growing presence in the Indian Ocean, um, growing submarine presence in the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, to what extent do you think the original decision to begin to develop the Djibouti, why Djibouti, was, were there also military considerations involved there um, regarding choke points, and a similar question, to what extent is the Djibouti operations, including the civilian operations, um, to protect civilian assets and corporations, do they come under the central command of the mm -hmm. theater command? Is there a theater command that's responsible? What theater command would that be? How do you see the mm -hmm. command structure within the PLA for the activity, mm -hmm. civilian activity mm -hmm. of the forces in Djibouti and elsewhere. So 
Yeah, great question. So uh, dual use facilities. I think uh, Djibouti and dual use facilities are somehow kind of peers and apples. They're both round, but they are different. Um, I, I would say my impression is was Djibouti was specifically thought uh, with the idea of supporting operations in that kind of part of the world. Um, and uh, uh, whereas dual use facilities, I think they can be seen more as a, a sort of insurance in a way, like if we need, we can access them, but we might not, we might never need them, or maybe we will need them. Uh, it's good to have this kind of agreements. Uh, in their very, of course, they apply very light footprint. So, uh, in in I would, they're not very expensive to to, to maintain. Uh, whereas Djibouti, of course, it's a, it's it's another story. Uh, so Djibouti, I I my I I try to pinpoint a bit of the process behind Djibouti, and uh, what I, I I know also like reading other the work of other scholars is, for example. In 2000, I believe the Djibouti has always been a kind of top candidate for, for a base. And uh, indeed, immediately after Libya in 2012, uh, Djibouti and China agreed to have a Chinese military attache in Djibouti uh, and to start also security cooperation. Uh, I, Djibouti is also one of the ports in the region where the PLA Navy is, in which, uh, in which the PLA Navy is most, most familiar with. And you know, over time, I think there was a period of kind of observation of the region, uh, but then different, uh, uh, for different reasons, the other candidates uh, that are the other ports where the PL Navy stops for uh, for replenishment uh, during the naval patrols against pirates uh, were somehow, uh, you know, uh, penned out of the list and Djibouti was the only one uh, remaining there. Maybe because Saudi Arabia is too close with the United States, uh, Yemen, there was a uh, uh, war. Uh, Oman, too close to Yemen, who knows what could, what could happen. Uh, so different, uh, different at the end of the day, Djibouti, uh, so Djibouti had uh, host bases from uh, different countries, including Italy. So, I mean, there's literally everyone. Uh, and uh, and uh, so it's a, some, somehow very neutral ground. Um, and uh, and uh, it, it was a good, again, I think it was a good candidate, probably uh, the kind of, yeah, I think it was a, it was somehow a natural choice. Uh, thinking about, especially for its location, not really say for the choke point in terms of uh, trying to eventually stop uh, flows of uh, oil going to Europe or goods uh, going back and forth from Asia. Uh, but I think more for literally, like on one hand, we are close to the Gulf, but at the same time, uh, we're also close uh, to uh, where our for example, peacekeepers are, uh, and and uh, so far and so on. So it's a nice place. It's also nearby Ethiopia, which is a very good partner for us in Africa. Uh, so that's a very good place. Um, uh, yeah. So this is. I, I, so I think in a way Djibouti was uh, uh, the best place, but probably it's the only place where China, uh, where all these good conditions can be found. And uh, and, uh, and I want to go back to the question that you asked about companies now now being in, uh, in dangerous places because that that those are the low hanging fruit. I think in general we can see that China Chinese diplomacy list in the region is facing somehow bottleneck. All the low hanging fruits have been taken. So Sudan uh, for uh, the oil industry, Djibouti uh, for the base. Uh, the question is, and I think this is again this is still an an, an unanswered question is. What's next? Uh, 
or even first of all, do we want more? Uh, I would say I don't think that's a, a obvious. Uh, I don't think there is obvious. There is an obvious answer, but definitely now the cost of kind of upgrading the presence are much higher. Thanks, Andrea. Um, we have two questions that are very similar uh, from Daniel Fu and Carl Peterson. Um, and there's the question about the role of private sector security companies. Now, personally, I recall when the first kidnappings would take place, there was a boom in entrepreneurial activity to provide consulting work to Chinese companies on security abroad and even cooperation between these startups in China and American private security companies mm -hmm. providing consulting work. Um, so the question related to all this is, does your research show that, um, that there will be a, you note that this private security role has failed in the past. Um, do you think there will be a, a emerging presence of private security along all the BRI routes, whether in Pakistan or elsewhere, Southeast Asia, and that will be a role for the private sector in these security um, mm -hmm. operations? And will it return to a prominent role in protecting Chinese interests? So I guess one way to think about it is certainly we have, um, in the American case, these private security companies having an active role in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Do you see that operating for the Chinese as well in unstable areas where they have their economic operations? Sure. Um, um, yeah. Short answer, I don't think so. Um, I think the doubts, the, the the obstacles that prevented the uh, reform of private of private security industry are still there. So I guess most likely we'll still we'll keep seeing like uh, maybe Chinese companies uh, acting more like consultants, uh, eventually hiring local, uh, I mean hiring local employees that can, of course, it, they make it easier to interact with the local population. Uh, they can carry gun, uh, which is not allowed in many countries. Uh, to for, uh, which is not which, sorry, which uh, yeah, they essentially can carry gun, whereas many foreigners cannot do so in in countries like uh, uh, in Africa and so on. Um, so probably we'll have this kind of hybrid uh, model, which already exists. It was already the original uh, uh, model, uh, and at the same time, we'll have probably the big uh, SOEs keeping on hiring like. Uh, Control risk, GS4, G4, GS4. You know they have the billion to do that, uh, so they have no problem to hire uh, high-end uh, Western contractors. Uh, in other places, probably you know uh, private contractors maybe can be can act somehow as connection between Chinese companies and local governments. Uh, or probably there will be you know we cannot expect try just Chinese government try to deal with this issue in a government to government. Uh, ways to try and in, like in the case of Pakistan asking the the host government to do more to to invest more in the protection of Chinese companies otherwise they might be a withdrawal and they, you know they might withdraw um, so I, I in any either case uh, I don't think we will see uh, uh, kind of red water uh, <laughs> anytime soon I, I really don't think so great um, another question on Djibouti from Mike McDevitt. Um, over the years, do you have a sense that this has become a fairly well-run operation and that the Chinese are pleased with the results of establishing a base far from China? And based on their experience, to the extent they think this has been successful, you will see them opening up more bases in the region. Um, 
I don't, I honestly, I don't know. It's, the, I, it's difficult to open the black box. Uh, I think to a, to a large extent, they're still in a, a kind of experimental phase, uh, trying to figure out exactly uh, what, what, what they can do, uh, how much it costs to deploy different assets, uh, how other countries, uh, both Western countries and, and uh, countries in the region would re uh, react to Chinese presence. Uh, so I first, so I, are they happy about Djibouti? I guess I think they are in general. In any case, they invested so much into that. So they must be. Uh, but will there be other bases in the region? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, as I said, I think they probably, they think that they found the right mix of, you know, light military presence. Eventually Djibouti can host more, is already hosting other assets that in, a, in really an emerging, in emergency case can be eventually used. Uh, but uh, again, I think we, we, we would still need, uh, we would still need another crisis or something big to really make it change. Uh, but so I don't, I don't think there, there would be other uh, bases uh, like Djibouti around the world, or at least in the region. I don't think, I, I don't think so. So a question on, from Emile Cassette. Um, so the Chinese are building up a capacity or have built up a capacity at Djibouti to do security operations for Chinese corporations, mm -hmm. civilians who work abroad. To what extent do you see a large military operation, small military operation? Um, what are the limits to using these forces to protect Chinese? Do you expect use of force mm -hmm. with right. a substantial military operation? I think the limits are uh, are more are increasingly more about political limits. Uh, they're not really necessarily about capabilities. At the end of the day, capability is something that you can develop over time and and uh, invest in money. And uh, uh, and especially, I mean, we're not talking about high-hand conflicts. Uh, so uh, we, we are talking about a limited number of assets in any case. Uh, so I think it's really about uh, the political diplomatic cost that using the military might uh, like might, might involve. Um, so what are my views? <laughs> I, I think uh, I, I, I do not expect significant changes from the situation as it is in this moment. Uh, probably again, I, yeah, I don't think I don't I do not expect significant changes. Uh, okay, maybe maybe tomorrow there would be some change, and I'm totally wrong. But uh, uh, for the moment, I don't I don't think that the there been the kind of the pressure uh, reached the the kind of tipping point to further somehow escalate. Uh, so for the moment, they prepared somehow. They 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 say at least the assets that we didn't have in the past now we have them, and at least we were capable of using them. Uh, in the in the evacuation from Yemen, that of course was much smaller than those from Libya. That, that from Libya, but still, uh, it was a good experience. Definitely a much more positive one compared to Libya, uh, where basically the the navy did not play any significant role. Actually, it was the air force that played somehow a more uh, significant role uh, in relative terms, of course. Um, so now they did somehow they are the capabilities. They, there is an agreement that if necessary, we will use them. But that said, uh, I think they hope that nothing will happen to force them to decide. So I have a, a follow-up question for you on Djibouti. 
Um, the dual use role, um, civilian protection, security operations for overseas investments, and the military role operations in um, Persian Gulf area, Operation Straits of Hormuz, Indian Ocean, um, would require two different sets of capability. One, we want to lift capability for operations within Africa, helicopters and so forth. As you say, the Navy was not involved in that. On the other hand, for operations in the Indian Ocean elsewhere, you would want to see capabilities and capacity at Djibouti that could support maritime operations. So when you look at the development of the base, to what extent do you see the port facilities capable of handling um, Chinese surface ships, Chinese submarines? And related to that, how often do you see those capabilities using Djibouti for refueling, maintain operations in the area? Sorry, there was a, a, an audio cap. Can you, can you repeat the, the second part of the question? Second one is how often do you see Chinese naval um, assets coming into Djibouti for refueling, for supplies, and then going back out for operations for anti-piracy or for operations in the Indian Ocean. So what it says mm -hmm. is becoming a logistical hub for the Navy in the, in the Indian Ocean. Um, and you see the facilities both in terms of the port facilities, the size of the piers, the size of the harbor, be able to support that activity, submarines. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how often do you see that those activities um, submarine surface ships calling into Djibouti and going back mm -hmm. out. Uh, in my opinion, and uh, of course, uh, my knowledge has clear limits. Uh, in my, my opinion is that Djibouti is, uh, although of course, uh, one of the original reasons for existence was to support the Navy uh, in the Gulf of Aden. My idea, in my understanding, is that Djibouti is something that is meant to focus more on eventually on land operations rather than naval operations. Uh, I, I mean, of course, in the case, again, the armament of dual-use facilities in the Indian Ocean, uh, of course, it can be part of that system. Uh, but again, the, my question would be, what kind of situation are we talking about? Because dual-use facilities, uh, like, uh, I think that in case of conflict, uh, again, for example, vis-a-vis -vis against India or the United States or anyone else, would be very easy targets, pretty much useless. Uh, Djibouti would be extremely far away for to be of any use. Uh, so again, if you're talking about logist, kind of logistic in times of peace, uh, sure, it definitely has a role. <laughs> that was also what part of his core rationale. Uh, but I think it's important to always ask the questions. Uh, in what kind of situations are we thinking about? And do the facilities that exist or they might exist would be useful? Like, I honestly don't think so. Um, so I would, think, I would say more Djibouti, this is why I think Djibouti is not, should not be read in the context of the string of pearls, but should be re read, read in the context of Chinese presence in a region, in that specific region, far from Asia, but in a region where they have interest and they have liabilities and there are threats. So in that context, Djibouti makes sense. In a kind of more kind of Indian Ocean, Indo-Pacific, uh, I honestly think, I don't think that would be that useful. It would be not that crucial to any sort of combat operations. Um, in your research, are you able to track how frequently Djibouti is used by the Chinese Navy? Uh, I, I did it only in the case of uh, uh, replenishments. Uh, 
mm. but mostly with a focus on uh, uh, naval, uh, sorry, anti-piracy patrols. Mm -hmm. uh, because my idea was that, well, it's, it's, it was really more about, if we think about uh, uh, starting to think where to, where to open a base, different actors are involved. Uh, one of the actors involved is clearly the Navy then it's important to see where the Navy is most familiar, where, where, where the Navy is most familiar. Uh, so I focus more on that kind of operations uh, rather than uh, uh, other uh, replenishment, which I, in any case, I, I believe they're still very rare. Uh, uh, although the piers that are built in, G in Djibouti could host big surface vessels, that's for sure. Uh, but again, uh, it's... Uh, it, for, I think uh, at this point, China, once you have the base, you don't have much to lose to, you know, to do everything you can to keep your you know, options open in any case. Uh, but that does not necessarily mean that they will be used. Again, think about a conflict. If there is a conflict, and most likely, I, though I hope it will never happen, is between China and the United States, probably will be in Asia. Uh, so... Uh, What's the use of a long pier in Djibouti for a conflict in Asia? Right. Thank you. I have a question from Phil Autry. The question is, over time, do you see improvement in Chinese analytical mm. capabilities and research to assess on risk in these areas? And related to that, to what extent to, to improve risk assessment impact policy? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, uh, it's one of the issues that I uh, deal with, I believe, chapter four. Uh, anyway, uh, yes, there's been, uh, uh, there's definitely been a, a growing investment in the development of regional expertise, not just Middle East and Africa and North Africa, but in general. Uh, and I include um, a table where I, I compare uh, basically the background of uh, Chinese ambassadors in, the, in North Africa and the Middle East I compared that their background in terms of uh, experience abroad, experience in the region, and experience in the relevant department within the MFA with their basically with their colleagues that are based in Europe. And it's quite clear that the ambassadors in the Middle East and Africa are true uh, regional experts, <laughs> uh, which you something you cannot say in the case of the ambassadors in Europe. Uh, there can be a lot of reasons for that. Uh, can be because the Middle East is not a nice place, whereas Europe is a nice place. So you send people that do not necessarily need, uh, you know, might be at the end of their career. Also, Europe is surely easier in a way because, you know, the language spoken there are much more common. Whereas if you want to deal with the Middle East, you need uh, different expertise. But in any case, yes, I think there's been a, a, a significant growth in terms of expertise in order to, at least to understand the risks uh, that are there. Great. Uh, Bill Overhaul, Bill Xiao, do you have any questions you'd like to ask? I'm getting, we're, we're okay from both of you. Very yes, good. Yes, I, I have a burning question. Is how does the Chinese, uh, its policy protecting its overseas assets and personnel compared to what the United States does? Very good question. It's uh, actually, I have a, a friend of mine asked the same question uh, to me a few days ago. Um, I think uh, the dynamics are similar. Um, uh, there is this uh, very good book uh, was published a few years ago. It's called The uh, Empire Trap, I believe, 
which looks at the history of the um, US government in, and the protection of its companies overseas, and basically shows that the pressure uh, to intervene also militarily to protect uh, Chinese uh, American companies abroad uh, somehow uh, stopped, ceased uh, with the introduction of insurance, of, of insurances uh, and, uh, and, and arbitration. Uh, and in general, again, if, going back to the, to the evolution of the Chinese state in a, in a, into in development into a regulatory state, there is definitely pressure from the government to use insurances, you know, to put the onus of protecting, uh, as, uh, the onus of protection on the companies themselves. So I think the Chinese government would like uh, to have the same uh, approach. Uh, it's just about finding a way to have companies complying with that. Uh, I probably in the uh, again it's uh, it's it's very difficult to go through regulations uh, published by Mofcom and so on. Uh, so definitely in 2011, after Libya, there is this study of the NDRC that shows that 99.99% of Chinese companies never bought an export insurance. So definitely there was a, there was a big gap there. Uh, probably today the situation has changed. Uh, it is increasingly changed, probably, uh, with the Sinoshore playing a larger role, especially with the big SOEs, which in any case are the larger players uh, in, uh, in Africa, Middle East, and so on. Um, so in a way, I would say that, that there, are, there are definitely similarities between the United States and China. The problem is the same. Uh, the instruments at the end of the day are the same insurances or you either you ignore or you buy insurance or you intervene in a way or the other uh, with or without the US government. Uh, and definitely the, the Chinese government like the American one does not want to ignore the problem, cannot ignore the problem. And at the same time is aware, uh, probably more aware than the American government uh, about, the, uh, the, uh, about the fact that deploying troops abroad can be very dangerous. I think it's something that can still be learned uh, elsewhere. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, but again, I think there are more similarities than probably than what we think. This way, this would be my answer. Well, thank you very much, Andrea. Um, this is a very informative talk, and um, I think we all benefited a lot. And um, I hope you'll come back again and and uh, talk to us about your next project. So thank you very much. Thank you. All. Thank you, everyone, for taking time to listen to me. <laughs>